Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. This being the first podcast of 2023, I'd like to start off with some big picture thinking about one of the problems that we editors at Quillette will be facing this year, which is related to Newton's observation that an object in motion tends to remain in motion. Of course, Sir Isaac Newton was referring to physical objects, but unfortunately the same principle is often true of politics. These days, you may have noticed, people who start moving rightward in their politics often tend to just keep moving to the right, and people who start moving leftward similarly often tend to keep moving leftward. I'm sure most listeners can think of their own examples, especially in cases of friends and family members who spend way too much time falling into internet rabbit holes. Maybe it's your coworker or an in-law who starts getting slightly more progressive or conservative in their Facebook posts but then starts talking more and more about their newfound convictions until the months and years pass and they've become full-fledged radicals or even conspiracy theorists. This can be a special problem for an editor like me because sometimes you find that writers and podcast guests who write and speak eloquently about being disaffected liberals or disaffected conservatives prove to be so disaffected that they eventually disaffect themselves right out of your political orbit. I'm not going to name names here, but it's become a real problem. Well, maybe I'll name one name because he's the subject of this week's podcast, so I have to. And that name is David Rubin, a former comedian and left-wing YouTube news personality who began moving rightward along the political spectrum a few years ago and never really stopped his rightward shift. He's now best known as the creator of The Rubin Report, a popular political talk show on the Blaze TV network which regularly plays host to controversial and sometimes even fringe right-wing personalities. Joining me to discuss Rubin's transformation is England-based writer Ross Anderson, whose deep dive into Rubin's career, which included an interview with Rubin himself, went viral on the Quillette website last month. I spoke to Anderson over Zoom on Christmas Eve. Here are excerpts from our conversation. One thing that was interesting about Dave Rubin when he was a stand-up comedian in New York, he really paid his dues. Uh, he did it for a long time. Did you write here that he did it for 14 years? That's like 50 years in any regular kind of career. <laughs> he's, he's not like some kind of spoiled brat who just graduated from Oberlin and decided the world needed to hear what he had to say. He stood in the corner of 50th Street and he was giving out flyers and stuff like that. So he started in 99, uh, 98 and did uh, internship with The Daily Show, but that was all just behind the scenes. So his first available footage and audio of his comedy is roughly from between 2003 to 2007. He did a show called Hot Gay Comics, which was a sort of variety show that he hosted as well as doing a stand-up segment. This was something we really hadn't heard before. I included within the piece, as I say, a 25-minute a recording of a set he did outside of New York. And I think it's the best of his comedy that I heard, but it's also very reflective of the kind of comedy that he did. It was 
very referential to the sort of 80s childhood stuff that he really loved of comics, of the Golden Girls, of Transformers, and also very crowd work dependent. This is something that he leaned into and gradually would become uh, most comics that he worked with thing overly reliant on. But he did 14 years in stand-up comedy. It was never highly lucrative. He never made it on the TV circuit, which was something that he'd always wanted to do. But he really did work very hard in stand-up comedy doing these shows. I have nothing but respect for the pure hustle that he did during that period. And, and as I say, particularly at the beginning, particularly pre-2005, a lot of comics I spoke to really did have respect for his true passion for the craft. And you make that clear. At many points in your piece, you're very complimentary to Dave. Part of the problem with writing a piece like this is that I frankly hate hit pieces. On the contrary, though, I'm, I'm also very averse to journalists who are extremely careful to keep good relationships with sources. Which you did not do here. <laughs> no, I didn't. And you end up with these pieces that sort of say about how wonderful people's hair are and how witty they are and how immensely charming. And I don't think either is doing my job properly. If Dave is listening, he has fantastic hair and he's extremely good looking. <laughs> Spoiler alert, we asked Dave if he wanted to come on either this or a, a different episode to give his side of the story. He said, no, this is information I was going to save to the end when I said, oh, we invited Dave on. I'm going to put it out here right now. I had a full exchange with Dave Rubin after your article appeared, and he was very clear that he saw this as a hit piece. He also said that there were all kinds of factual errors. He then declined to indicate what those errors were, but he went public and assured all his fans that he didn't like the piece at all. When you wrote it, did you know that he would regard it as a hit piece? I don't believe there's a piece I could write which was critical in aspects that I think were relevant, that did the reader justice that Dave would not consider a hit piece. When you write an article, I'm not writing it for Dave. I'm not his ghostwriter. And the piece is ultimately for what I think as a writer is the closest I can get to the truth in a honest sort of portrayal of a person's character as possible. Ross, you're not on trial here. I liked your piece. <laughs> no, no, I know, I, know, I, know, I, know, I know I'm not. I, ultimately, I'm just simply saying is whether Dave thinks it's a hit piece or not, I, I ultimately don't think is particularly relevant. Why did he give you an interview? He's so guarded. I don't want to use the word paranoid, but it sounds like he has a lot of rivalries and grievances and grudges and enemies and stuff like that. Why would he give you or anybody an interview for a piece like this? I was a 2020 Tablet fellow. Tablet is not exactly the CNN of the online media space. It is a diverse space. No, 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 no. Tablet. I'm a big fan of Tablet. I call Tablet the Jewish Quillette. Yes. I call Quillette the Gentile Tablet. <laughs> Your fellowship at Tablet carries great to, weight. To be fair, I think, if, I think if, I had a, if I had a CNN fellowship, I don't think Dave would have accepted me. I think the Tablet fellowship, why I got an interview would come from my background as sort of a, a disaffected liberal is the term that has become popular as someone who was to the left of center or in the center, believes in liberal principles, but also is dissatisfied with much of the mainstream press. Um, that is the positive view that you give of Rubin's reason for speaking with me. The, the negative is that I'm young, and that tends to be a, a trend among people that he'll accept interviews with. And perhaps that's simply because if you're less experienced or you're young, it is, it's quite difficult to be confrontational with someone in an interview. Your story, in some ways, is a little bit about the evolution of TV, because you have Dave Rubin bouncing around New York, trying to make it in comedy, and, you know, he's sort of 
gets to the second or third rung, but can't quite climb the ladder. What's interesting is back when he's doing it, it starts in the late 90s, the idea of making it was like getting a sitcom on NBC or CBS or ABC. Uh, and then in the 2000s, suddenly there was this explosion of possibilities and Dave started pursuing some of them where you didn't have to get a meeting at NBC, like in some subplot on Seinfeld, in order to get your sitcom produced. You described these TV networks that I'd never even heard of, like apparently Larry King had some kind of TV network, and I'd never heard of this Young Turks. Tell me a little bit about some of these opportunities that started popping up as a result of the digital explosion of TV options. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's interesting going through the opportunities he went towards and pitched. They have similarly tracked their trajectory. They went from being very traditional, very television, to becoming very online. I have the 10-minute pilot he recorded for a sitcom he wanted to make with his friend uh, called, I believe, Truly Great People. And at the end of it, it says something like, HBO, please buy this for a million dollars or something like that. Um, and it is tongue-in-cheek, but this was also sent out to television executives. So he, he was very much always angling himself for traditional television. But as time went on, he was always looking for new opportunities, new areas. He tried doing some programs at Hear TV, which was a, a small gay network, um, did some podcasts there when that was quite early. He had some podcasts he tried recording on his own in the early 2000s that have a couple of recordings of, um, that are just basically him talking to a microphone. But again, this is when podcasts were very early on, and he was very early to this. He got into radio and did the six-pack with Ben Harvey, and that was quite successful. And from there, he sort of looked into other opportunities. So The Young Turks is a YouTube news show. It's very left-leaning, a progressive network, I think they describe themselves as. And they're actually the longest-running YouTube news channel. Um, and they're extremely successful. They have a big studio. They're based in uh, California, based in L.A. He had a got a job there through connection with Kelly Carlin, George Carlin's daughter, uh, who he had met some years before. Um, and at the same time, he actually did a show on uh, the Golden Girls, a fan club that was... <laughs> this Golden Girls thing is so weird. <laughs> either, either an online show, or it was either an online show, or it was through Facebook, or it was an actual show and just had a Facebook page. Unfortunately, however much I wish I could uh, watch those, I've, I couldn't find any. But just to be clear, he actually liked the Golden Girls? Yeah, he's a huge, he's a huge Golden Girls fan. I never understood the appeal of that show. And I know I'm going to lose half my listeners here. Like, it always <laughs> seemed like such a cornball, dumb show. Maybe it's because I grew up in the presence of older immigrant grandparents from Russia who, you know, had survived all kinds of horrible things and cracking wise about the neighbors was like absolutely the last thing on their mind. But I always found that show so tiresome. All of Dave's taste is this very, very middle brow. As I said, nothing I have no objection to. I, 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 I'm not going to be a media snob. Oh, I am. I, I very, <laughs> I, I very much will take that role. <laughs> he loved, he loved, he loved the Golden Girls. Um, and even that was the thing with his stand-up. His stand-up was never edgy. It was never particularly political. He had a couple of things that were sort of mocking George Bush for being oafish, but that was, you know, right. that isn't particularly remarkable. I think you can find the least political comic alive today. And if they were doing stand-up in two thousand three, they're probably saying some not very nice things about George W. Bush being silly. Right. Um, he will still sometimes reference back to the Golden Girls, even in a show in the last year or so, not with the same intensity that he did in his earlier periods. <laughs> Who can match that intensity? <laughs> if, if I am the leading Ruben expert on live, aside from the man himself, he is probably the leading world's most famous Golden Girls fan. So bizarre. Uh, so the, the Young Turks thing, that filmed out in uh, Los Angeles, right? 
Yes. So he moved to, he'd be living in, in New York. He'd be living in Amsterdam Avenue and doing his radio show uh, where he had met uh, David Janet, uh, his now husband. And they had got this opportunity to join the Young Turks to do a show there. He'd guested a couple of times, but this opportunity came up. He was connected through Kelly Carlin and he moved out there to start that show. And what year is this? Uh, that was, I believe, twenty end of 2013. So it's 2013. So this is an important date in, in Daveology if you will. He he abandons New York, and suddenly he's out in the L.A. ecosystem, which is important because in your article, you you make something of the fact that L.A. at that time was had a sort of supportive media culture for people like Dave. Yeah. And, and, and also, the husband, they got married later on, he was a, a producer. It sounds like he brought more professional production values to Dave's uh, media enterprises. Is that right? David Janet's production skills were always highly respected, including by people at the Young Turks. Had nothing but positives to say of, of Janet's uh, production quality. And that was uh, when it came to Dave's leaving the Young Turks, according to Cenk Uyghur, uh, one of the lead anchors and co-founders of the Young Turks. He had wanted actually to keep on David Janet's as a uh, to help work on their other shows. That was how well-regarded his production was. And uh, yes, they'd met when he had been doing radio in New York. Um, I, I think when you talk about the different media landscape between New York and LA, Dave had spent 14 years on the streets of New York. He'd been trying to appeal to a largely tourist crowd. These were not people who were coming to his show who were looking out for comedy. If they went to some of the, you know, the famous comedy clubs in New York, if they were going to see Saturday Night Live and they were seeing that, or they were going to appear as one of the audience on the late night shows, they're out for comedy. That wasn't Dave's audience. Dave's audience were people he heckled off the street who were visiting New York on a holiday and they were out to do something that night. Accidental audience members. They were accidental. So his sort of middle brow taste appeals to them quite well. You know, it's a very easy to digest comedy topics. It's not as though if you had someone like Anthony Jeselnik is doing that environment, it probably wouldn't go particularly well. So when he moved to LA, he had seen people start in New York and go out there to be successful. Notably, I believe her name is Melissa Rausch, um, who had started working at the comedy company with Dave went out to LA to start a show called Big Bang Theory. And he saw this opportunity with the Young Turks and moved out there. And it's this bright, sunny place by the sea uh, with all the celebrities you can imagine and uh, Frankie Valley down the street and this sort of thing. And I think that really appealed to Dave. He really does seem to have loved LA and the opportunities that were available there that he really did flourish in. The Young Turks has a main news show that has been very successful for many years, but they were expanding out their sort of range of shows that they offer, much like many independent media organizations. They start out doing a small thing and then they grow out to do what many of the bigger publications and media companies do. So the Young Turks had focused originally on this news coverage, and then they were expanding out to do more sports and entertainment coverage. None of these things were particularly successful. This is something Chank acknowledges to me himself. Dave's wasn't remarkably less or more successful than anything around. It wasn't particularly successful, but you can't necessarily level that at Dave. These are left-wing YouTube shows, right? Yes. And this isn't that long ago. 2014. Fairly recently, he was still left-wing, right? Well, see, that's where the question arises. Fairly recently, he worked for a left-leaning organization, but his show wasn't particularly political, nor just as his comedy wasn't in the years before. At the Young Turks, it was a news covering show. It was a, a panel show where you'd invite a couple of sometimes comic guests, including Melissa Rausch, and they would invite them on to talk about topics of the day. And sometimes these would be a serious news topic, but more often than not, these were light, fluffy things. Uh, as I note in the piece, one of his most popular articles 
to this day is still from that, which was about condoms getting more pleasurable or something to that regard. Sorry, I, sorry I'm going to condoms becoming more pleasurable. Listen, we can direct listeners to the exact name of the the clip. <laughs> I just wasn't going to give you a pass on. Sure, that. sure, no worries. Uh, let me let me get the exact name of the video. So published eight years ago with 15 million views. Uh, wearing condoms just got a whole lot better. Dave Rubin's number one video still to this day. Okay, okay. So not not exactly highly political fare. No, no. His third most popular video still is also from that period, which is Lebanese porn star Mia Khalifa responds to haters. We're going to return to Mia Khalifa because you have a kicker at the end about her. Yes. But we're not going to spoil that. But keep going because I, I just want the name Mia Khalifa, <laughs> to be in people's minds. But uh, please keep going. This was a very light, easy-to-watch show. This was almost kind of like how The View is at the times when it's not getting viral on Twitter because they've talked about something they shouldn't have. It's talking about the light, fluffy topics of the day. It's some, hey, some celebrity's done something, some new tech thing's fun, sex robots ended up being a topic that got covered quite a bit. Um, it, it wasn't hard political stuff. So to really say that this was a left-wing show or that Dave was a notably left-wing figure at the time seems to be, is, is a narrative that Dave sells. And maybe it's something he believed at the time. Maybe he did have lots of progressive left-wing beliefs at the time, but it's not something that people really detected. It's not something, he wasn't a very political person. Uh, even Young Turk's colleagues at the time say that they would talk about things, but it wasn't it wasn't with the intensity or the passion that you would find in other people. His really coming to political commentary, to an intense passion in the goings-on of politics, or perhaps more accurately in Dave's case in the culture wars, was something that came after he'd left the Young Turks in the years afterwards, really in the last five years. So when it comes to leaving the Young Turks, the story that Dave presents is that Sam Harris, a philosopher, a liberal social commentator that I have been a great admirer of since I was about 13, uh, he had been invited on the Young Turks to talk with Cenk uh, Uyghur about a range of topics. And and one part of contention that has always been, I, I think, misrepresented by even by people like Glenn Greenwald has been Sam Harris's argument about preemptive strike use of nuclear weapons and arguing the ethics of when that is appropriate and not. Very serious subject. Yes, not not a not a light topic to say the least and, and one that needs It's not about condom pleasurability index. It is definitely not. And that is the topic that I think Harris's argument has been severely misrepresented by many on the left. And I think Uyghur was among those who misrepresented it. And that was I believe one topic of I haven't the debate is about four hours long. And though I was happy to dedicate many hours of my life to doing this Ruben piece to get it as thorough as possible, I only have so much a limit for masochism. I didn't necessarily want to listen to four hours of that. Um, so I can't quite remember all the details of that conversation. But that was a very heated debate. It was not the... When we think of cordial conversations talking about big issues, this wasn't that. It was a very heated moment. It was not well-conducted. On Weir's part, I think Harris did remarkably well. I think most people would not have reacted so neutrally. And in Dave's telling, this was a turning point that he saw his colleagues, people he liked and played basketball with every Sunday, that he saw them as these irrational, very partisan people who weren't able to accept the arguments made by Harris. And this prompted him to leave and start his own show that would engage with these arguments in a more fair way. And this was pushed even further by Harris's appearance on Real Time with Bill Maher, 
where Ben Affleck reacted rather poorly to comments about Islamofascism and uh, Islamism and terrorism and decried uh, Marr and Harris as being racists, which became somewhat of a viral clip. And this whole thing is complicated by the fact that Sam Harris is not really traditional, at least American-style, political conservative. No, he's not. He's more of a heterodox liberal in right. maybe the fashion you might describe yourself, right. maybe the way I describe him. It's uh, <laughs> it's Saturday. Who knows how I describe myself? <laughs> and and the, 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 the clincher of that narrative that Dave sells of this debate with Cenk Uyghur, the Young Turks, went badly, and then this thrashing out again, Harrison, real time. This all sort of ends itself with Dave leaving a network that he thought wasn't doing what it should be and starting his own by starting the Ruben Report as an interview show and debuting with his interview with Sam Harris, where they talked for about an hour and 15 minutes. One wonders where Dave Rubin would be if he were born 20 years earlier and he still had to navigate the 10-channel or 15-channel universe. Would he still be on 50th Street handing out flyers? Would he have a one-season sitcom on one of the major networks? Or would he have gone to law school or something like that? But the media landscape now, he was able to just keep bouncing around until he found a niche that he was able to really explode, which he did, though certainly not in the way he might have imagined just a few years previously. Right, right. That initial interview with Sam Harris was extremely popular. Look, Sam Harris could read the phone book and you'd get a million. I had Sam Harris on the podcast. <laughs> we had tons of listeners because Sam Harris is the celebrity. And I was one of those kind of million people that would listen. I, I was, uh, as I say, I was a, a huge admirer of Harris. And I listened to every interview that he did. And I had a YouTube algorithm that was well tailored to fulfill that need. And <laughs> therefore, on the day that Ribbon's interview released, I was among the first viewers to watch it. So Sam Harris was your was your golden girl. Sam Harris was my golden <laughs> girl. You are absolutely correct. And uh, I so I watched the, that first interview of this new interview form of the Ruben Report. It was a, it was a good interview, as as you say. It's hard not to get a popular interview out of Harris. And one read of that interview, and the one that Ruben initially was selling, was that this is an example of the kind of friendly sort of inquisitive, curious right. conversation that can pull people in, that you can have long form in a way that CNN won't have, that you can talk to people at length. Well, so this was proof of concept. And shows that audiences are really interested in lots of diverse, interesting ideas and could talk about these great, difficult issues at length. However, Sam Harris also was critical of various parts of the left, as anyone can be, and is very popular. And ultimately, that was the successful route. It wasn't the interview with marijuana experts on policy. It wasn't the interview with civil rights activists who he did an interview with early on. These interviews don't have many views. But Ben Shapiro, but Milo Yiannopoulos, but Candace Owens, who at the time when did the first interview was still red pill black, they got a ton of views. They got a ton of views. The interviews with Mike Cernovich, both of them, got a ton of views. Remind me who Mike Cernovich is. Mike Cernovich was a men's rights activist blogger, sort of, he started writing, dating, um, dating's the wrong word, sort of men who do these coaching things on how to basically trick women into sleeping with them. Ah, uh, I call them Lotharios. I'm quite old fashioned. <laughs> I think that's perhaps doing too good. To anyway, Cernovich wrote a sort of blog on exercise and hooking up with women and what he called the gorilla mindset. Then he sort of switched veins when Trump came along and became very sort of outspoken as, as a Trump supporter. This is where he came onto Rubin's uh, radar 
And that was his first interview with Ruben. Ruben opens the interview by saying, uh, I've wanted to add a Trump supporter on and you were a notable Trump supporter. And and that's sort of where Cernovich went down that vein, being very pro-Trump. Then he became very Pizzagate focused. And Pizzagate was the thing where they thought that pedophiles were making pizzas in Washington yes, or something? Yes, another, another piece of information that any listener who hadn't been aware of has just had a worse life because of, yes, the idea that Hillary Clinton and John Podesta of the DNC were secretly smuggling children to eat or have sex with in a pizza shop in D.C., the details of which you really don't need to touch. No, I think I think that's enough. That's quite enough. <laughs> <laughs> so Cernovich is sort of a, was one of these people of the outer rim of the internet who would dabble in these sort of very testy topics of... And Ruben had him on. And Ruben had him on quite in 2015 to talk about the case for Trump, basically. But it wasn't like the case for pedophile pizza. It was the case to be for fair, Trump. At that point, he hadn't embraced the pizza. He hadn't done the Pizzagate stuff by that first interview. I believe by the second interview he had, okay. and he didn't, and Dave didn't confront him on him. However, at that point, Cernovich did have a number of blogs and tweets where he had said that date rape isn't real rape, had basically said that if a woman is uncomfortable with you or not being very forward, to just whip it out. So super gross stuff. And these were never mentioned, to be clear. So the idea here, to summarize, is that Dave Rubin had on these super sketchy guests who had said absolutely reprehensible things, wanted to maintain this conceit of affable, open-minded debate, and so didn't confront them on these horrible things that they stood for. And so superficially, it was, look, we're having this intelligent conversation with people of different political views. But in reality, those conversations including included people who really had no intellectual credibility. Yeah, that's that's pretty fair. I think the the key metric, if you think about all this, is views, right? The the views of his videos are how he grew success, it's how he increased his revenue, it's how he supported his staff, and it's how he made his voice more notable. But I had him on, I had Dave Rubin on, I mean, I guess I'm like, in, in this way, I'm sort of connected by a couple of degrees of separation to this, these, whatever, Pizzagate people, because <laughs> I had Dave Rubin on the podcast a couple of years ago. This was, I think, 2019. Dave Rubin and I had a very affable, interesting conversation. I mean, maybe I'm guilty of this by one factor removed. A lot of the times when you hear about a metamorphosis in a, in a pundit like this, their personality, when you talk to them and meet them, becomes very irascible. I had a very nice conversation with, with Dave Rubin. You know, people can go back and listen to it. I did a whole book on conspiracy theorists. This is 10 years ago. When you interview a conspiracy theorist, you can kind of tell in their discourse, like the, there's a sort of, not always, but there's often a very sort of crankish, antisocial aspect to the way they converse. In Dave Rubin's case, at least for a while, he seemed to coexist as interviewing some very marginal figures. And at the same time, in outward appearances, maintaining the same kind of friendly, mainstream demeanor. A core thing to understand is that there are beliefs that 20 years ago, you could only hear from cranks. Now, a lot of those beliefs are very sort of at least dabbled in, at least curious in, at least there's some doubts about. There's some airing of versions of them among quite a lot of mainstream elements of the online right. I'm not saying these are people on Fox News necessarily, but maybe some are. Tucker, I would say definitely. But there are views that you would have to be a crank before to hold them. Now you just sort of have to be a very team player, partisan, online figure. 
In the same way, the blue and on people who will, if you're sufficiently online and very left wing, you'll get concerned about extremely dumb issues very quickly. I don't think Dave is a crank. You know, he he isn't, but he holds crankish views. Dave has said that vaccines, the COVID vaccines don't work and then has some ambiguity about vaccines generally and has talked about the timing of these certain things as though it's sort of conspiratorial, as though when the midterms are coming up, this was before they happened, obviously, that we're going to have the next wave of COVID. And, you know, and just when COVID is going well, now we have the Ukraine war, a new thing for them to be concerned about. The Tucker Carlson comparison is interesting because Tucker Carlson, who's, I guess you could say he's more successful than Dave Rubin in that, you know, he has a regular Fox show. He's gone full crank, right? Uh, on vaccines, on, on Ukraine and whatnot. But Tucker Carlson is a guy who, even when he wasn't full crank, you could tell was kind of an asshole. Whereas Dave Rubin is the opposite. A, co- a couple of notable, interesting differences worth noting that Tucker comes from a very wealthy, very media background. The Tucker at some points has talked about improving the media. Um, the Daily Caller, I believe he founded, and that was part of that mission of being a right-wing New York Times. Well, he did that show with uh, John... Um, Crossfire. John Stewart. Yes, uh, he did. John Stewart was with Appearance, uh, where it sort of ended, was attributed to ending the show. Yeah. And also, Tucker was is an incredibly intelligent man, and he used to be a very talented writer. Um, Hitchens was always a huge fan of his, Christopher Hitchens. Hitchens said on many occasions that he wished... Tucker would do less television and would do more writing. And boy, that has aged well. Whereas Dave didn't come from a wealthy background and wasn't that sort of hyper-educated class. He isn't hyper-linked with the political elite in the way Tucker is. And in the same way, he's not intellectual in the way Tucker is. Well, also, Tucker was old enough to remember the golden days of Crossfire and the National Review. And, and I mean, even in his aesthetic with the bow tie and stuff like that, he, he hearkened to a, a an era of conservatism where wealthy people who owned yachts could have talk shows. They smoke-filled room conservatives. Whereas uh, Ruben is not a class of that at all. Ruben is someone who wasn't a conservative until relatively recently. He is, I believe I make the comparison, the piece of someone who found politics later in life and much like people you've met like this who find religion in their 40s or, you know, or something like this. But his conservatism doesn't really manifest as conservatism so much as it manifests as, hey, aren't progressives stupid? A politics of opposition. Yeah, the politics of, gee, isn't the other side stupid, which strangely, or maybe not so strangely given human nature and our tribalism, turns out to be way more popular than actual positive platforming of people who have ideas that represent your own views. Dave has described himself as a conservative and also not a conservative. At the Turning Point student conferences that he has done many years, he for many years was going, I'm the last liberal. And then a couple of years ago, I believe last year, maybe, he went up on stage and says, I'm a conservative now. I'm here as a conservative. That feels great. Which is fine. (laughs) Absolutely fine. Absolutely fine. I have no problem with people being conservative. As I say, I proudly have on my CV that I've written for the American Conservative and wouldn't apologize for it for a second. I have many conservative friends. (laughs) The question of whether Dave's a conservative or not is kind of interesting because it's a question of what is a conservative. Uh, Not to borrow the name from Roger Scruton, as wonderful book. and The dearly departed Roger Scruton. Sir Roger Scruton to both of us. Absolutely brilliant writer about Marxism, among other issues. I wrote an obituary for him on Medium some years ago. I believe it was a liberal's obituary to Roger Scruton. A brilliant man, a brilliant thinker on the nature of beauty, and absolutely. And and his, his views on architecture have certainly aged perfectly as well. There's a wonderful documentary of Roger Scruton on aesthetics. This is becoming very elitist. We have to stop this. Is, it. Yeah. But he comes, he visits MoMA, and there's Duchamp's urinal, 
and the look of the look of complete hatred in his eyes is one of the most beautiful is just hysterically funny we're gonna have to put that in the show notes. <laughs> regardless um the, the question of what is a conservative is has sort of become a question of today you know is trump a conservative no no but also he's the leader of the republican party he put he enacted lots of right-wing politics he is the de facto head of the american right so no, not in any way that we howty touty people who read Roger Scruton would say is a conservative. But to lots of Fox viewers, to people at the Turning Point student conferences, yeah, he is. So in some sense, Ruben's inconsistency about whether he labels himself a conservative or not is kind of apt. If he's talking to Bill Maher, he's not a conservative, and he's correct. And if he's talking to Turning Point students, he is a conservative, or as much as many of they are. Um, I think that's sort of looking down on your audience in a way. I don't think that's a consistent thing to do. And I don't think he does intentionally, to be clear. But that is the problem, that much of the American right, particularly the very online American right, has become this politics of opposition where they are pro very abstract concepts like freedom. And then the things that they're opposed to are very specific and become very cranky very quickly. So Dave Rubin happens to be gay. As you describe it, I mean, it's it's actually very kind of sad that he lived in New York. He actually, it was fairly, fairly late in life. I guess maybe he was already well into his 20s. Yeah. He came out as, as gay, but, you know, he, he was very guilty about it. He came out around the time of 9-11. He came out the, the, the midnight before 9-11. Which is itself a kind of terrible coincidence, but also like had this morbid sense of guilt. Even though he didn't come from a Christian background, he came from New York Times reading middle class Jewish background on Long Island, but like felt in this vague way that evil events in the world, maybe even including 9-11, were somehow connected to, like, his, his gayness. You don't linger on this theme, but could you talk a little bit about maybe how how that affected his career arc? Yeah, so so Dave is... I describe him as temperamentally conservative at some point, I believe. What I mean by this is he likes basketball. He likes the Transformers as a kid. He is a guy. He's a dude. Transformers can be enjoyed by people of all political orientations, oh, I, Ross. No, no, no question. <laughs> but if you watch comedies of the late 90s, the only representation of gay men that you'll see are a sort of a feat, silly... That's not true. So, Will and Grace... So, one thing I liked about Will and Grace is it had it had the yin and the yang of gay men. It had the main character, Will, who was like the redheaded guy from Modern Family, who was like this sort of generic white collar office worker who happened to be gay. Mm. And then you had Jack, who was this sort of very stereotypically, maybe more promiscuous, more mm. self-absorbed. It was just, it was kind of more of a stereotype. Uh, so I don't know how this turned into like 90s sitcom. And <laughs> I will, I will be completely candid. My knowledge of Will and Grace is ridiculously limited, unfortunately, before my time, not to age myself too. Well, you need to you need to work on that. You need to educate yourself and do the work. <laughs> anyway, sir, this is tangent. Go ahead. Please go ahead. When Dave started comedy, he was described as a dude comic by lots of people I spoke with. He was he was one of the guys. The comedy scene at the time, gay comics were often quite a feat. They played into a sort of there was a certain stereotype that was associated with gay comics. And this was even in his one of his best friends was a comic named Mike Singer, who was himself a tad more effete um, in, in the way he spoke. And I think Dave saw a view of what gay men have to be in comedy, and it didn't match with who he was at all. Um, and part of the effort when he did come out and start doing more comedy was to really try and change the perspective of what gay men are, you know, gay comics in New York had to be like. Um, he did some early interviews 
uh, that are still some available on YouTube where he talks about this. But before then, he really did struggle with this. He talks about drinking a lot of wine, about smoking excessive cheap amounts wine. of parts. Cheap wine, cheap, cheap red wine, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, and to such a degree that he was hallucinating as he walked down the street. And it really was torturing himself um, about his sexuality. And it's, it's a really tragic um, part of his story. And, and he came out. It didn't dramatically increase his comedy prospects. He got a few new opportunities. But he also he didn't want to be like other gay comics. He was still himself. His comedy really didn't change much at all. He just made a few different jokes here and there. Again, he did Hot Gay Comics, which obviously he told more gay jokes than he did prior to acknowledging that he was gay, but it wasn't a central theme. And he was just exactly the same as he was before, unsurprisingly. And he seemed a lot happier and healthier after coming out, according to, again, people I spoke with. But his struggle with the sexuality was really quite tragic. He recalled in a interview quite recently that he used to not to mention the golden girls again i believe it may have been the golden girls and he would watch it in college in his dorm room and then he would be keenly listening for his roommates so that if they were coming in he would flick the channel and that's really tragic this that until you're you know into your 20s to not know who you are and not be comfortable with it when he starts out with his own network he creates these this set of rules where like he's going to be super respectful and he's not going to do personal attacks on people but he becomes really mean on social media yeah you know you have this riff about he talks about how california's governor is a psychopath mm. uh noam chomsky ruben says he's a disgusting human being uh, anthony fauci is evil incarnate but then you have this thing and i'm going to this is a dark confession on my part when I read this line, I actually burst out laughing because it's what Dave, what Dave wrote is, is was a horrible thing to say, but also like I, I'm admitting that I, I found it funny. We're coming back to Mia Khalifa, the former porn star who had generated so many millions of views for Ruben's network. She had tweeted something anti-Zionist and one of your themes is Ruben was a lifelong Zionist. Ruben's reply to her on Twitter was, quote, you've had. I hate myself for laughing at this. You've had too many loads blown on your face. <laughs> it's such a horrible, trollish thing to... How could you type that? How could you type that? How did he become like that? You wouldn't see Wolf Blitzer saying that, no. Boy. <laughs> uh, my suspicion is he doesn't put a particularly large amount of time or thought into writing his tweets. Is there ever any tweet that he apologized for? The closest he's got that I've seen was where he tweeted about Chank Weaker, about the Nice attacks, where he tweeted something to the effect of... Cenk, so this is the, his, his old boss at uh, Young Turks? His old boss and friend, uh, boss, co-host, friend, used to play basketball every Sunday at the Young Turks, and had tweeted, but a few years after leaving the company, had tweeted something to the effect of referring to the Nice terrorist attacks. Hey, Chank, haven't seen you tweeting about the Nice attacks. Are you pro or against? Something to the effect of that. And when asked about it in a Reddit AMA that went horribly awry, he sort of said, I believe he said, I, I regret that, or I could have phrased that better. Something like that. He is not, I haven't, apologies are not something that come to him readily. There's, there's a vein of sexism in some of his, in critiques, the way that he talks about women that he's critical of. That is a, a strain that really has become more pronounced in the last couple of years, where he has got more prickly and in social media and i think it's just because he has twitter on his phone and he flicks through it and he sees something responds and he just fires off a response and you know that's it he doesn't really think about it and that's why typos are also not uncommon among his tweets and you know and i think i 
write this in the piece that Ruben isn't stupid. I don't think he is speaking with him, but he just also doesn't need to be smart or disciplined or principled because a lot of the deciding factor is reactions. Um, when he tweets something that is pretty uncouth in reaction to someone who is saying something against him or his side, there may be some responses from people who say, you know, I really dislike this, but a lot of them will just be in retweets or it'll go ignored. The great thing about the online media is that you are working for yourself in many cases. You can't be fired by some big corporation that doesn't like your particular online brand and the way that you tweet and what you think. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But the, the other thing is that there's no real incentive not to be pretty awful if you feel like it. Um, nobody's going to tell Dave, hey, do you want to stop that? But, you know, and not saying, not necessarily saying you should, I'm not saying you should be fired for a tweet like that about Mia Khalifa, but it probably would be good for every single person involved, including any person who reads these tweets, were they less common. Again, it's 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 extremely disappointing for a show that was launched at the time when I started watching it on this idea of the exchange of ideas, that the mainstream media really can't do this. For it to go from that to bust a number of years to end up at, you know, you know, you're a hack warmonger to David Frum and OnlyFans comments to other To women. To women, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty nasty. I mean Anna Kasparian, um, who was one of his closest friend at the Young Turks at the time, one of the lead anchors there, um, used to dine at their house uh, very frequently. And she noted to this to me, it didn't make the piece, but about how you can find a certain kind of misogyny that occurs among gay men. Um, so I think that's actually a not unreasonable thing to say with these kind of remarks. They are, yeah, it's hard to get more you know vicious than evil incarnate when it comes to Anth- you know, which is about Anthony Fauci. Yeah. But also, that is really not as vivid as the remarks he made about Khalifa, for instance, for something that is. Yeah. To be yeah. although to be fair, a certain kind of misogyny among gay men. You can take the word gay out of that. Yes. Very true. Yeah. Gay men are men first and foremost, and we can be terrible people. Very true. He and his husband are doing a cookbook now? Yeah, so Ruben and Janet, uh, one of their, they share many things, notably their name, David. They also love cooking. And they've adopted two kids. No, sorry, they haven't adopted. They, through surrogacy, they have two kids, which is, which is very nice. Uh, and, and according to um, Dave, and uh, recently said that, you know, he was delighted. He was just loving seeing how great a dad David Janet is. And I think most people I spoke with said that that was undoubtedly going to be the case. And, you know, and I have nothing but, happiness for them in that uh, honestly that was the his having children was honestly part of the reason i was so was something that was quite conscious in my mind for working on this piece because we often forget when we engage with people online that there's a person on the other side you tweet that somebody's had too many loads blown on their face and you don't necessarily see that as anything but a, a zinger online 15 or 20 years from now, these kids might be listening to this. They could read the piece. And um, maybe he will have changed. Maybe he will be a different man. And he could he's transformed himself several times. Exactly. Is it possible that like he deletes Twitter from his phone, finds Instagram Jesus or whatever, and <laughs> and, and, and renounces a lot of maybe some of the more pointed stuff he's done, and maybe returns to the person he was 10 years ago? Like, is that possible? Can America is a land of transformation? Is there another chapter to be written here? Ruben isn't an evil man. I was very um, very clear to put in a piece an example where he edited his show. The only time he acknowledges to me, I can identify a couple of others, but the only time he acknowledges to me was that one of his guests was very high and very drunk. 
And, you know, if you were a pure amoral hack who just sort of wanted to get as many views as possible, you would leave that up as it was. Let the spectacle roll. I like that part. I like that he did it, and I like that you included it. I don't know. Maybe it's possible that Dave finally gets that talk show he always wanted to do. Maybe he moves on from politics and starts interviewing celebrities and does it as this sort of his version of Letterman. That's ultimately what he always wanted. He always sort of wanted Letterman meets Charlie Rose. He talked about that. He described himself as the uh, gay Johnny Carson when talking with JC Alvarez. So yeah, I think it's possible he does that. On, On the flip side, I wouldn't necessarily wager on it. Many of these tendencies that we see now are rational extensions of part of his personality that have been evident for a while. A hyper concern about his image and a concern that people around him are fucking him over or betraying him. It's not something I wanted to d- dive into when I was talking about his comedy era. Well, you did inadvertently because the people who he went to war with at Young Turks, he had them over for dinner on a weekly basis. But even prior to even prior to that, the, the most dangerous place you can be is in Dave's inner circle because yeah. it seems like a couple years later you're gonna be like on the firing line. That was Anna Kasparian, yes. His non-public personal life, his friends and stuff maintain quite well. I think it's when friendships and his profession come together, that's where things get a lot more dicey. I think if he meets someone at a workplace and they become friends, but a workplace opportunity comes up that is better, I think that friendship is more likely to... He would rather the friendship suffer than the career. That's just an observation. I'm going to end with a question about you. This is a great piece. You're You're very... From what I can tell, very fair, great writer. One of many writers who my colleague, Jamie Palmer, at Quillette, he has a sort of genius for finding these people like you who who <laughs> send in these 10,000-word pieces that he then spends a week editing. <laughs> From reading this piece, I felt like you had a fairly close connection to Los Angeles, and yet I think I'm talking to you, you're in England now? Like, what's your deal? I'm a British writer. I've always loved America. I've always wanted to move to America. I only write for American publications. I've never visited America or What's LA. It? You've never been to the United States? Nope, never been. Oh but, my god. Um, well, it's, um, okay. it's on the to-do list. On the to-do list. With the, with the LA connection, that was a function of, that was such an important place for Dave. Um, in the same way that I think if you read the New York section, it's, it's very clear on details of New York. Okay, so you're like the Tocqueville. Stephen Fry did a wonderful documentary series where he went to every state. I, I thought that would be quite fun doing a doing a book of doing a book of essays, one essay for every well, state. Well, you know, Dave has a sixty five hundred foot mansion, so you'd be able to stay at his place, right? True. I I <laughs> bet you he would be happy to to give me a room if I asked. Ross Anderson, uh, where can people read more of your work? So they can find me at Twitter at that Ross chap. They can follow my Substack at rossandersonwrites.com and they can see all my work at thatrosschap.com. We're having this conversation on December 24th, so have a great holiday. And I expect Quillette readers and listeners will be hearing more from you in 2023. Thank you so very much, Jonathan. Likewise. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette Podcast. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. 